Hello and welcome to another edition of the Standig Room Only Podcast. Yes, I'm your host, Ben Standig, and I cover the Washington Commanders for The Athletic. It is Thursday morning here in the DMV. Uh, hope everyone is doing well. You know, had a chance to, you know, take a breath, relax, absorb all that has happened over the last few days, few weeks here in Commander's Land. Uh, obviously, you know, a, a big, a big prominent week. Uh, Dan Quinn, the new head coach, Adam Peters here is the GM, the, wi- the Wizards, the, uh, the, the commanders are, uh, you know, they have their group in play and now they can move forward discussing things like how to fill out the rest of the coaching staff, which uh, Dan Quinn is working towards now, as well as what do they do with, uh, things like their free agents. I have a story up on The Athletic today where I ranked, a bunch of the free agents. I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. And obviously you look forward towards the draft. Uh, I have guests on today with that in mind. Phil Longo, offensive coordinator at Wisconsin. You might be like Wisconsin. Well, before that, for three years, three or four years, he was the offensive coordinator at North Carolina, where he had Sam Howell his whole career, and he had Drake May before going to Wisconsin this past year. So needless to say, I asked Phil about those two guys, what does he think about Drake May as a prospect? What did he think of Sam Howell's year? But in addition to that, Phil Longo has a history with Cliff Kingsbury, Washington's new head coach. They both run their version of the air raid offense. Uh, they have stayed uh, friendly through the years. And I gave, uh, I asked Phil what he thinks about Washington hiring Cliff Kingsbury as well. So a lot to get to here on the podcast, which of course you can find on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you do your podcasting. If you missed our last episode, David Aldridge and I broke down the press conference with Dan Quinn, Adam Peters, and Josh Harris, as well as just our overview of the moves made. And uh, John Machota, our Cowboys insider, joined us for thoughts on Dan Quinn and Joe Witt Jr., new defensive coordinator. So we'll get to all that here in a moment. Of course, also make sure you subscribe to The Athletic. Always appreciate the fact that everybody's anybody's willing to to do that, and you guys are always so great and supportive, uh, for sure. And uh, follow me on X or Twitter or whatever we're going to call it at Ben Standing. I wish I could tell you I'm consistent on Threads. I am just not. I, I, the algorithm is just terrible. I get it that Twitter has its own ma- ma- main problems, but that is where the bulk of the audience is. So I, I try to dabble in Threads here and there. It's just, it's just, uh, it's just not so much for me. But I do have an account there. It is at Ben Standing. For sure. All right. Um, let's get to a couple of things here. Uh, so we're now in the process where the team is working on their uh, filling out their coaching staff and beyond the coordinators and what happens with the guys on the team. Uh, you know the current the current staff. Uh, m- the expectation is that they hope to have this wrapped up in the coming days to the point that we get an announcement on the staff early to middle of next week. It is Thursday now. I don't, you know, we'll have to see how quickly they can maneuver. We have seen some reporting that some of Dan Quinn's former coaches he's trying to interview here have been blocked by the Cowboys. Now, you can block lateral moves. I'm always curious, and I don't honestly know the answer, but like we see now all the time, you know, Chris Harris left here as a DB coach, went to Tennessee, as a DB coach, but they gave him uh, an extra title, uh, pass game coordinator, I believe. Is that enough to – the reason why t- teams can block moves um, if it's a lateral move, but if it's for a promotion, then no. I don't. So I don't know. Like, could you just say, for example, apparently Cowboys defensive backs coach uh, Al Harris, former NFL player, th- he was one of the ones blocked. I, I – since there's a defensive coordinator in play, I would wonder, like, could he be a defensive backs coach and slash assistant head coach or, you know, defensive backs coach slash, you know, passing game coordinator. I don't know if that is enough to get through an interview. Either way, it's a, whatever it is, I presume that Washington is, knows, knows how this all works and they've just uh, run into a roadblock for now. They did, uh, they did uh, get one. They do have a couple of names um, that, that they're going to check out. Some of the deeper uh, cut assistants on Dallas's 
staff. So, you know, we'll see who he brings in. And like I said, in turn, does anybody stay? I, I you know, I think I got like a Ryan Kerrigan makes for like an easy stay if, if that's what everybody wants to do. You know, recent former player, obviously, you know, one of the better players in Washington's, you know, last, you know, 10, 15 years. Uh, you know, I'm sure Dan Quinn has great respect for Ryan Kerrigan. He was here last year as an assistant defensive line coach. I, I would imagine he could stay in that exact same role. That's just a, a guess on my on my part, but um, I, I would think that would be something that would that would work out should they want to do that. Beyond that, look, it's just you know hard to say when, when you have a four win season. Nothing was really. It's hard to point to anything and say, boy, that really worked out. Uh, you know, if you want to say, hey, I think Brian Robinson was one of the players that improved the most last year, which I would say he was. Does that mean you keep Randy Jordan around, who was already kept from the Jay Gruden staff to the Ron Rivera staff? You know, perhaps there's uh, something there. One of the coaches that they tried to get from Dallas was their, I think their assistant tight end coach, but to look at him as an offensive line coach, uh, I, I guess that would signal that Travell Wharton and perhaps likely Juan Castillo are not uh, long for their time here in D.C., uh, you know. Again, we'll have to see. I don't want to fall into the trap of what happened with the last, uh, with, with the head coaching change, because you just never know. And, um, you know, just because you're going to interview somebody does not mean that you're not it, also looking at the people who are currently in place. But, you know, if you're looking at it, then it means they're, you know, you're not, you're open to possibly moving on from them as well. So we'll see where that goes in the coming days. Uh, but obviously, and also, you know, you wonder, like, you know, does Cliff Kingsbury have any uh, say with possibly bringing in some people on the offensive side to help him out as well? It would seem reasonable to think that could take place. It's funny, like, right, Doug, Drew Terrell, the wide receiver coach, went to Arizona. Did he? Uh, well, you know what? I take that back. I guess he was. I guess Kingsbury, yeah, he went there and Kingsbury was gone. So that doesn't mean anything anymore. So scratch that, that random notion um anyway so we'll see where that goes hopefully we hear something begin beginning or middle of next week to check off that box if you missed it from the other day uh adam peter said that he is going to sounds like he's going to keep the front office intact possibly add some other names as i've mentioned to you previously that don't you know that that's not abnormal teams often don't make moves in the front office until after the draft um because, you know, teams are, 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 are uh, hesitant to let people out of their deals because from other organizations because, uh, you know, they've got all the state secrets uh, of what their team has been doing pre-draft. I mean, it, it still feels like the draft is a ways away, but the teams are right now in draft mode. I was checking with some people um, this week and they were unable to talk to me because they said that they were in all day draft meetings now. So, um, or we'll have to delay it for, you know, a different day. So those things are already happening. I don't know where Washington is on that because obviously it's a bit of a different situation, but you know, when we get to May, June, perhaps then we will see some changes in the front office. And I would just say, don't panic if they're not making any changes. A lot of times it can be the same people can be good. It's just what's the structure. It is a very different structure now because of Adam Peters versus having a head coach in Ron Rivera overseeing things. And, you know, if you went, if you read my story uh, about what went wrong in the Rivera era, you know, a lot of it had to do with the front office and, and the sort of um, uh, confusion that was at times there with who was doing what and so on. So I wouldn't worry too much about that right now. And either way, we'll, we'll see more probably uh, past the draft. Um, all right, so let's do this. Let's get to Phil Longo uh, because I do I, w- I do want to get into the discussion about Cliff Kingsbury as well as these quarterbacks. And on the other end of that, I'll have some thoughts about this interesting week in media coverage with regards to our story and what I think it says about how people view the media. So I'll do that after the Phil Longo interview. But right now, let's do let's talk to the guy who coached Sam Howe and Drake May, possibly the number two pick in this draft, as well as somebody who is very familiar with Cliff Kingsbury. Let's do that right now here on the Standard Room Only Podcast. All right. Uh, joining us here, as promised, Wisconsin offensive coordinator Phil Longo. And we're not talking about the Badgers at this moment in time, unless Phil's got 
something he thinks is pertinent to the commanders, but we are going to talk about two things that he's got really uh, good insight on. One of them is, of course, he used to be the coordinator at North Carolina, Sam Howe. That's when we, uh, Phil and I spoke a couple years ago when Howe was drafted. They've all, he also coached Drake May. And more pertinent to this exact moment, he uh, knows Cliff Kingsbury pretty well. So a great opportunity to get some insight there. Phil, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, no problem. Appreciate the invite. Um, I guess just since the news of the day is here is about Cliff Kingsbury, uh, I guess could you give us a little insight into your, you know, your relationship with him and how you guys, if I'm right, have sort of a similar philosophy with regards to offense? Yeah, very, very similar philosophy. I think I, I um, had the pleasure of meeting Cliff when he was actually playing quarterback uh, in the air raid for Mike Leach at Texas Tech. And so, you know, he was a multiple-year starter and one of the best that Mike had at Texas Tech. And, you know, I used to trip out to see to see Coach Leach, and I'd sit in the quarterback rooms. And so my first exposure to Cliff was when he was actually playing and practicing there. And, and then um, as he got into coaching and I got to know him better, you know, he became another guy that I really wanted to seek out and track down because I thought one of the real unique things about coach was just in trying to research offense was looking into the various successful offensive coordinators in both college and pro football. He was religiously one of the guys that had a lot of success with, you know, some of the creative stuff that they did outside the box, outside the base offense. And so, we just kind of developed a relationship after talking football from that point. Um, interesting. So with regards to Cliff at uh, in the NFL, obviously he was the head coach of the Arizona Cardinals for a few years before joining USC last season as an offensive assistant. I, I imagine you took, took a look at what Cliff is doing, how he was translating some of his college uh, approach to the NFL. I'm just curious, what did you kind of see that he was able to do to to adapt what he was doing in college on the pro level? Well, I, th- I think in any offense, if you if you are a good ball coach, and Cliff is is one of the best in my opinion, you're going to let the talent that you have dictate what you emphasize on the offense. You know, and and uh, from an air raid standpoint or from a, a philosophical standpoint with what Cliff decides to do at, at Washington, typically your talent. And I can't speak for him, but over the years, he has, in my opinion, done a fantastic job of attacking defenses schematically using the strengths of the talent that you have on the current roster. You know, and that, that's no different here or, or anywhere. We, we will we will probably focus on something different next year here just because the talent base is different and you're going to emphasize what what you can do well and and he is uh one of the best at it and i you know you saw that as he changed and and uh molded the offense at Arizona same thing with uh when he was there at the Houston and Texas A&M and Texas Tech and so you know, he's just been consistently like, successful over the years everywhere he's been, and I don't really see that changing in Washington. Um, you know, I, I was here when Joe Gibbs 1.0 happened, and he came in with this Air Coriel offense, and after an 0-5 start, he's like, all right, let me let me look at this again. And he sees he's got John Riggins, he's got a good offensive line, completely reshapes the team. They obviously win a Super Bowl, and then he later, in his later years, kind of reverses it the other way, going for more of a big uh, downfield passing with uh, Mark Rippon, Art Monk, Gary Clark, etc. So, uh, but ultimately, I'm sure he had those philosophies that he came in with the Air Coriel type of type of deal. I guess, I guess my my long way of saying, what are some of those like air raid principles that you know I'm sure are just in his DNA? What's the how would you describe that that offense, and how would you think what is the challenge for defenses against it? Just philosophically, I mean, what you're trying to do is create a lot of space and let your quarterback be a, a great distributor of the football. So he's, he's his responsibility, the primary responsibility is to get the ball to five, your five skill players, and, and balance really in, in this type of offense is about distribution to all of your skill players so that the defense not only has to defend the field 
sideline to sideline. They also have to defend it vertically. And then they have to defend all five players, whatever makeup that is. You know, it might be two tight ends. It might be uh, two running backs. It might be four wide. It just depends on where the strengths lie. And and obviously the, the, the most creative ones utilize all those personnels and those formations and those pictures to attack defenses. Um, probably lean towards being uh, more of a repeat caller, meaning you may run a play more than one time in the game. That's not very popular in the NFL, but some of the better offenses in the league right now are some of the higher repeat call play systems. And over, you know, over the course of the last eight, ten years, I mean, Coach Kingsbury has done that um, with a high level of success, and he obviously is a tremendous developer of of quarterbacks and and so i'm sure that's what the expectation is for him there with the commanders um we'll get in i'll ask you about sam howell and drake may specifically in a minute but you know washington's in a little bit of well not a little bit they're in definite flux right now because it's a whole new regime we don't know what this is going to mean for anybody who's currently on the roster they do of course have the number two pick in the draft so it's possible they're going to address quarterback there but in terms of what you think uh, Cliff would like to do offensively. What do you see as the ideal type of quarterback for his general uh, offensive philosophies? Well, it's hard for me to speak for Coach. I, I I'm not going to try to do that. I think he's going to ex- assess the the talent base on the roster, and then he's going to do exactly what I said, and that's try to promote you know the strengths that are on the roster and. At quarterback, I just know he's always had guys that are obviously very talented passers, have some mobility, so they have the ability to extend some plays. And you know, above all else, they're you know they're able to handle the game from from the mental preparation standpoint. And those have been things that all of his quarterbacks have excelled at. Um, it, it would shock me to see anything different here in Washington. And you know, my, like much of the fans out there, I'm excited to watch. Uh, Coach Kingsbury, Coach, whoever winds up being their starter there in Washington going into the season. You know, I know that USC and Wisconsin will be Big Ten rivals next year, which is still such a bizarre thing to note. Um, but I don't know. So I don't know how much you watched USC this year. Obviously, Caleb Williams was the quarterback there. You know, I don't know how much you can say what you saw with Caleb this year was any reflection of of Cliff's teaching. But just out of curiosity, did you? What did you kind of make of that dynamic this year at USC? Again, assuming you had a chance to to take a look at them. Well, I mean, I've had a chance to watch them. I haven't broken them down and studied them like we do our opponents. Obviously, we're all busy during the fall and season. But um, Caleb is obviously very, very talented, and uh, he is really what you know what we're just talking about. He's a talented passer. He's an athlete. Has an opportunity to extend plays when he needs to. And um, I can't speak for what the mental preparation is and the knowledge base is with Caleb because I haven't coached him. I did recruit him. Um, I thought he was a smart kid, a bright kid um, when he was coming out of high school and at Gonzaga. And so, you know, it it probably is more well-known by, by Cliff what Caleb is capable of, you know, since he did work with him hand-in-hand. And, and then obviously uh, Sam Howell, a quarterback that I got to coach, you know, I had the pleasure of coaching at North Carolina, is there now. And I'm actually excited for Cliff because I think he's got a good quarterback in Sam, and I'm excited for Sam because I think he's got a good a good football coach in Cliff. So for me, I'm just going to sit that, sit back and be a fan and watch the two of them work together if that's what comes to pass in the fall. Yeah, for sure. And I guess like you know whether it's Sam or if it is a Drake May, based on the offense that you were running at North Carolina, how for those guys, how comfortable do you think they would therefore be with? Again, we'll see what he what, what what Cliff does, but based on you know what you know, how how similar uh, offenses would they be in uh, if if Cliff kind of stays with you know with what you were doing? Well, the the offense that Sam Howell was in at North Carolina is obviously the same one that Drake May was in at North Carolina. It's from the same offensive family tree that they ran in you know at USC with Caleb Williams. And Coach Riley and and Coach Kingsbury. Um, again, I can't speak for what Cliff is going to do at Washington, but if it remains the same or similar, then obviously there would be a lot of overlap for all three of those quarterbacks 
if if one of them has the opportunity to work with Cliff in Washington. So it's always a plus when you have a guy coming in at quarterback that already has somewhat of an understanding as to what you want to do offensively. And again, I think Drake and Sam and Caleb are all a little different and whichever one winds up working, you know, with Cliff at Washington, he's, he's going to do what he's got to do to make the most of the talents that that individual has. And it'll be, it'll be an interesting process to watch. So let me ask you about Drake May. You were the coordinator at North Carolina until you went to Wisconsin this season. So you certainly had a up close uh, look at, at at him and and you know helped him develop into a guy who's you know obviously considered to be one of the top prospects and certainly one of the top quarterbacks in this draft. What stands out to you most about about his his abilities um, and uh, and why he's such an attractive prospect? Well, I mean, it was an absolute, let me say this is an absolute pleasure coaching both Sam and Drake. And you asked about Drake. So I will tell you that, um, he is an ultra, ultra competitive football player. And it's, it's, you know, you would think they're all competitive, right? But I mean, this guy is, he's obsessed with the game. He's, he's a junkie. He loves the X's and O's. He likes the, the process of preparing for an opponent. Um, He's a very talented passer, um, and he has and, – and let me be clear, I'm not saying that he's Patrick Mahomes. I'm just saying that he does some things that are similar. He can throw off platform in that way. He can extend plays with his legs. He can he can move laterally or vertically towards the line of scrimmage and make throws, um, contort his body, throw off platform and off balance, and, and be accurate doing it. And, and that, that gives him an opportunity to be a little creative. And so, you know, that that is the way he executed and, and the way he attacked defenses at North Carolina. Um, it's the type of player that he is. I've always attributed it to his background. Very athletic-minded family, wonderful family, two of the best parents I've been around, extremely competitive line of brothers that he grew up playing basketball with. Um, and that's in my opinion, where I attribute um, his his body control and his and his hips and his feet, uh, and it and it translates on the field when he's playing quarterback, uh, when he's asked to have to extend plays with his athleticism, and so that's going to be an asset wherever Drake winds up. I kept calling him Luke May forever. Uh, there when, when he was when he was playing quarterback, as you know, that I've, that this was where my brain kept going. Uh, his brother played for the for the Zarials. Um uh, look, obviously, a lot of times teams now have quarterbacks come in as rookies and start playing right away. I personally would prefer teams to sit them for a while because I just think it's the, the adjustment period is, is so tough in the NFL. But you obviously know him well and you know the game on both ends. I guess sort of two parts. Do you think he's ready to play day one if that's the way it goes? Or would you prefer him to, hey, it would be better to maybe watch the game for a little bit, get a feel for the league, and then get going you know we we've had quarterbacks come and play at all different rates right i mean sam howell came and played immediately you know he's a true freshman starter right away handled it well and and uh he was the best at that moment and so we played him drake got an opportunity to develop for a year and started as a redshirt freshman and did just as well you know and so it's it's hard for me to project i have not coached in the nfl so i don't you know, I am not the expert with regards to what the level is a guy has to be at in order to succeed at that level. I do know this, that Drake is uh, as talented as a lot of the guys that are in the league. Uh, he's got to transition from college to the pro league. Uh, that's a process he's got to go through with the coaches. Do I think he can handle it from a mental and an athletic standpoint? I certainly do. Uh, at some point, I think he's going to be a very, very good quarterback in the league for somebody I you know I'd be speculating if I was trying to project whether or not Drake may could play right away next season after being drafted. Um, would it be weird if Washington did draft him at number two? Which you know, if everybody's projections seem to be right and Caleb Williams goes one, he could easily be the guy, and then you would have possibly the two guys you had in college on the same depth chart again in the pros. Well, selfishly, I don't want to see them both on the same roster, but that's right. 
that's selfishly in, in my world. I want to see them both compete somewhere where I can, I can watch them both play on Sundays. Um, I do think they are both going to be successful in the league. So it's hard to keep two guys that can be successful in the league on the same roster. Um, I also, on the other end would be really excited if either or both of them had an opportunity to work with Cliff, because I think the world of him and his ability to coach, develop quarterbacks and run an offense. And so, you know, he's probably had outside of coach Leach, the greatest impact on how I view and approach and attack coaching offensive football. So obviously I, I think very highly of, of Cliff's ability to coach. And I, I think he's one of the best around. And so, for him to work with Sam and or Drake or both is a good thing. Ultimately, I don't know how long you keep those two on the same roster. Right. Um, and just lastly, since we're talking about Sam Howell, you know, he sounds like you had a chance to watch him somewhat last year. I guess, look, Sam had a really strong start to the year, and he wasn't the only one the season, you know, took turned downward for Washington uh, across the board. But what did you kind of make of his season, and, and where do you think, the next step for him uh, is as an NFL quarterback. Well, I know what he did at North Carolina. He, he, he got, he got on the board and he got on the film and the season was over and he evaluated just like I did every single thing that he did during the season. You know, and you, you, you want to look at what you did really well. You want to look at what you didn't do well. You want to see what you're consistent at. And then he's going to dive into improving whatever the weak links are. And, I think that's why every week for three straight years, three straight seasons, Sam got better. You know, and he was just, uh, he was three years better when he left North Carolina than he was when he started. And I don't think that that improvement process and that uh, evaluate, self-evaluation process is going to change any. And I, I think he will continue to get better as he plays, you know, each year in the NFL. Uh Phil, I greatly appreciate the time. Uh, you have been uh, very flexible with me today to get, to get this done, so I greatly appreciate that. Um, I highly possible and maybe talking to you again down the line, especially if Drake May ends up here as well. But I appreciate it. Have a, have a good uh, uh, rest of the week, uh, off season, and I'm sure you guys will get a have, a have another fun year at Wisconsin. Well, appreciate it. I thank you so much for the invite. Thanks. All right, big thanks to uh, Phil Longo. Now, um, you know, I look, I, I, the Kingsbury hire is really interesting. It's definitely a, you know, as much as all this talk about Dan Quinn, good hire, bad, should they have done something else? I, I, I don't, you know, I don't get the sense that there's much real debate over it. The Dan Quinn's a totally fine coach. It's a little underwhelming relative to getting that sexy offensive coordinator hire. And obviously, it depends how you view Dan Quinn's first run as a head coach. Was that all about Kyle Shanahan as his OC? Uh, you know, what happened there? But in general, I think people are pretty uh, satisfied. And I mean, like, league-wide with the idea of taking him. The Kingsbury, the Kingsbury one feels like it's much more uh, up for debate because of the fact that Arizona, other than one year, you know, really didn't really struggled as a team. Kingsbury's record in college not particularly good. Now, he isn't the head coach here, so the record part doesn't matter. But, you know, in the NFL, his offenses weren't completely, you know, out of this world either. And part of the reason why things fell apart was the either the decline or the plateau for a bit of Kyler Murray, who, you know, uh, as somebody who had him on my fantasy team this year when I had a bunch of other injuries, uh, you know, he obviously played fairly well. So uh, it, it's an interesting, and that was, of course, without Kingsbury. So I think it feels more polarizing on that end. He is also a very creative play caller, game manager. Uh, you know, he'll be able to uh, stretch the field in, in either, you know, vertical and horizontally, as Longo said, as Dan Quinn suggested. So interesting one for sure. Um, we'll, we'll have more time to discuss that. Um, I do want to just touch base, though, on the week that has been here uh, for uh, talk of the commander's head coaching search, and the Ben Johnson of it all. And uh, look, it's been interesting from my perspective because this story got a lot of attention this week. Uh, People were not happy (laughs) about it for a variety of reasons. If you look at the comment sections in The Athletic, uh, look, I I get why Detroit Lions fans are going to be a certain way. You know, rock on. It's your team. I get it. Um, You're going to take a lot of this as, uh, you know, criticism of Ben Johnson, which, you know, I think we all understand the gist that he – 
pulled back from the meeting with Washington when they were on their way to see him in Detroit. Uh, and people had some other issues with the, some of the framing of my story or even some of the writing. Fine criticism. I don't really have an issue with that. I, I can always do better. I, that's fine. But in terms of the the interpretation of the story is where I really wanted to focus on. And a few different outlets commented on it, including The Ringer. And I'm just using this one as an example as to what I think is interesting to me about this story. The headline of this of the story is, The Commanders Are Not Mad About Ben Johnson. Please don't put in the newspaper that they got mad. Uh, and then the subheading is, Washington has its new head coach in Dan Quinn, so why is so much reporting focused on how the man on the man who turned the commanders down? Well, I guess just to answer that second part, the part of the reason is this is what everybody in the league is discussing. I, I was in Mobile for the Senior Bowl on the Tuesday that Ben Johnson, uh, you know, revealed he's going to stay with Detroit, and it was all anybody wanted to talk about the rest of the time I was there. I, I don't know how many conversations I had about any specific players there. But when I would run into somebody else there who was with the league, you know, in, 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 you know, whatever coach, executive agents, former player, you know, whatever it might be. If they knew me and we, or I introduced myself, all they wanted to know is what happened with Ben Johnson. And my understanding is at the Super Bowl, that is still the case, at least in the beginning of the week, maybe now it's moved towards, Hey, what's going to happen on this Sunday. But that was, as far as I can tell, a still major, major topic around the league. It is fascinating as to what happened here. Because it is so rare to see a coach, like people turn down opportunities. That's not unusual. But that he turned it down, he turned down even just the meeting after weeks of discussions with them about possibly doing this. I mean, you know, the, the Ben Johnson to Washington rumors were, were running pretty hot, as I have told you many times now that these rumors that were overheated, that it wasn't a lock that Ben Johnson was going to Washington. But because that was the narrative that kept coming out, it felt like something more dramatic happened in the end. Now, I do think they were interested. They may have very well made him that offer. They also very, very well have have recognized, hey, he is not necessarily dying to do this, uh, which is evident by the fact that he decided to not do it. He didn't just turn out Washington, as we know. He, Seattle was also interested he passed on them, and I imagine other teams um, earlier in the process that that settled or not settled, but like went for other coaches. You know, had had a feel that like Ben Johnson was you know either out on them or possibly just out in general. So, for me, the the point of this story, or at least why I thought it was interesting, was it felt like Washington was getting over. You know, they were getting boxed into it's Ben Johnson or bust. I told you I never really bought that, bought into that. Now, whether that was going to be Dan Quinn, which I know like my guy Kevin Sheehan has talked about a lot, um, or, you know, if it could have been Raheem Morris, if he had still been on the board, he signed with Atlanta the previous week, or Mike McDonald, who we reported they did make an offer to. You know, again, I don't necessarily think it means that Dan Quinn was like their fourth option as like there were like gaps, like, I used this analogy when I went on with Al Galdi this week on his podcast. Like when I was a kid, like I was a 10-year-old, my dad would take me to Baskin-Robbins. You know, I didn't walk in there going, definitively, I want this. I was like, ooh, I love Rocky Road. I love Pralines and Cream. Do I want a hot fudge sundae? You know, what's go- what, do I- what am I doing here? And it would take me a few minutes to figure it out. And then I would order something. And if they said, hey, we're at a Rocky Road, I'd be like, cool, I'll go with Pralines and Cream or, you know. Whatever. Um, that That's very different than acting as if it's it's this, and if we don't get this, we're going to have a meltdown and have a temper tantrum in the room. I never got that sense during the process. I, don't got, I didn't get that sense after the process. But I do think that what Ben Johnson did was unprofessional. And I'm not saying that because necessarily Ben Standing thinks that, although it does seem that way, but because when I asked people at the Senior Bowl and elsewhere – what do you make of this? Wasn't a leading question. I wasn't like saying this guy's a disaster. Do you agree? It was like, well, what do you think happened? And almost everybody said that was ridiculous. That Washington got screwed, which is something I said in my story. But the, what's interesting about it is how many people have interpreted the story as the commanders venting through the athletic. So, for example, 
in a story written by, who is it? Riley McAtee, I don't know that individual. In the story, uh, it talks about Adam Schefter has been reporting about this a lot as well. Very much in line with what uh, I reported. Um, he, so anyway, in the story, it talks, it, here's, a, here's a graph. It says, for those unfamiliar with how the sausage gets made in NFL media, McAfee pulled the curtain back during Schefter's rant on the show. Sorry, this is Adam Schefter talked on Pat McAfee's show on ESPN the other day. Quote, Shefty is plugged in with the commanders. We need to remember that. McAfee said of his ESPN coworker, quote, you are actually giving their side of the whole thing, end quote. Schefter's response, what's the other side? And this to me is very important because you can go in as a neutral party and ask questions of people. And sometimes those answers become you know, something akin to a 50-50 split. I understand why this side did this. I understand why that side did that. In this case, other than the acknowledgement that, sure, if Ben Johnson doesn't want to leave Detroit for whatever the reason or doesn't want to go to Washington, fine. No, nobody's, like, saying, well, that's ridiculous. You have to leave. But the way it went down was the issue, the, you know, turning them down while they were in route. Um, I've seen so many people misinterpret this that they – I've seen people say that they – Went, they flew to Detroit, and then as he, they heard in air that Ben Johnson was out, they turned her back around upset. No, they, they, they went to Detroit and interviewed Aaron Glenn. Um, I've heard people say, well, all this talk about Ben Johnson shows that the Aaron Glenn interview was, was a sham and just for the Rudy rule. No, they'd already interviewed uh, Anthony Weaver and Raheem Morris if the Rudy rule was a driving factor. And furthermore, the, they have made a point from the beginning of saying this is going to be a rapid but thorough process, a deliberative process. And based on Josh Harris's history, that is a reasonable thing to assume. They had months to prepare uh, because they bought the team right as training camp started and then couldn't do much right until the end of the year when they decided to move on from Ron Rivera. So they had a lot of homework. I talked to somebody involved in the process on the outside the building who said that, yeah, you could tell that they were ready to go, that they were prepared for this journey uh, because of the fact that they had done a lot of homework so they could move quickly. They, they got Adam Peters done within a week, right? That was a, a com combination of identifying somebody that they really wanted, but they had done a lot of homework. Now, you couldn't hire Ben Johnson until you met the guy. They obviously never did in person. Um, so anyway, just to go back to this story about like what's the other side. And then it says, Washington's week-long temper tantrum has ostensibly been aimed at showing how not mad the commanders are that Johnson spurred them. They're just fine, dot, dot, dot. Well, Okay, uh, again, the Washington's week-long temper tantrum. Now, again, I don't know what who Schefter's talking to. Here's what I would say. Go to my story um, on The Athletic and do me a favor. Do a – the story, of course, how the commanders landed on Dan Quinn – uh, following an out, an outrageous head coaching service. Outrageous isn't quote because that's what somebody said. So go go to that story. Do the control F thing, right, when you're looking for a word. And then type in uh, a, a phrase. Type in team source. And what you will find is there's nothing there. Nowhere in the story am I quoting a team source. League sources, yes. Some executives with other teams, yes. Team source, no. I... I like, you know, obviously, I, you know, we all do the best we can to talk about different, uh, you know, about the team we're covering. And, you know, it's obviously great to get the insight from the people in the building. But, like, they were very quiet throughout the whole process. That's why, this, the ben, in my opinion, the Ben Johnson buzz kind of got out of, out of whack because of the fact that there was no other narrative. The only narrative out there was this idea that Ben Johnson was a lock, but they weren't talking to shape it until the very end when I, well, again, I'm presuming that somebody over there spoke to Schefter when Schefter came out and said that, Hey, don't assume Ben Johnson's the only guy. Um, so again, people were just assuming that the commanders are the ones running around bitching and moaning. And that's led to all of this 
uh, hyperbole. Now there are these reports about oh the demands were outrageous, or he was a bad, or Ben Johnson was a bad interview. Could those have come from the commanders? Maybe. I don't think so, though. Um, you know, look, Ben Johnson did interview with other teams, as we know. So I don't. I, it doesn't make sense to me that they would have done that, even if they were, you know, annoyed at the end. Now it's possible the demands were too much. I, as I wrote in my story, a theory that exists that I think I buy into is that Ben Johnson wasn't particularly thrilled about going about taking a head coaching job now. But his agent was like, "Look, you gotta, you gotta at least look, listen to this stuff. You, you're the hot guy. And let me, you know, let me get you. Let's see what we get here with the end number. And you know, I think to push the number as best as as high as possible in terms of the terms is a way to, for the agent to get Ben Johnson on board. Perhaps that seems like a viable theory based on everything I know that went down and things I've heard from other people." Which would tie into then the idea of how much money he's looking to get for, for, from teams. So maybe Washington had a sense and was like, yeah, I, we, we're going to have to see about that number. But we obviously are interested in talking to this guy. But l- l- let's just go back here a little bit again to this Ringer story. So uh, it starts with talking about Schefter. And then it gets into some of the things that were mentioned in my story. And I want to show as an example why... You know, this, I, I think people are completely misinterpreting this. It says here, um, this meaning the Ben Johnson talk, this all accumulated, all culminated in Monday's story in The Athletic that purported to tell how the commanders landed on Dan Quinn following an outrageous head coaching search, but that mostly served as a forum for more shots at Johnson. Um, and then it highlights some of the things that, some of the terms that were used. Quote, a newbie power broker. Okay, I that was used for him and McDonald. Yeah. Am I wrong on this? Is Ben Johnson not a new power broker? Like coaches and executives and even agents, they're used to this all the time. This is new for Ben Johnson. He went, yes, he did go through this process last year, but he called it off before things got ahead. The point is to say that it can make the teams that are interested in him look like they are off the mark or, or, or out of control because the zigzagging that can happen when people who are new to this take wild turns. Ike turning down a team from an inter- turning down a, an interview with a team while they're flying to them. So I don't know how an, calling somebody a newbie power broker is negative. A perceived wonderkind option. Is that is that a negative? I don't understand. Ben Johnson and Mike McDonald are being are viewed as these tactical geniuses, you know, the, the next generation of really smart guys who know how to call plays and schemes. I, I, I Again, perceived they can because perceived from the perspective of going from the coordinator to the head coach, as you've heard me say, like that is a very different job. Okay, uh, commitment phobic, and, and and I'd have to look. I'd have to look at the context here, and I'll, I'll try to do this really quickly while we're talking. He has now twice Ben Johnson bailed on the process. How on earth could you view it as anything else? As He's got some issues, perhaps, about wanting to commit to these jobs. Um, the the line I used here, um, it was about how Washington, like they couldn't have moved any earlier in the process to get, say, a Brian Callahan, uh, who who took the Tennessee job, uh, or a Dave Canales who went to Carolina. Because if you did that, you would have had to then give up on the hope of Ben Johnson. So I wrote here, jump on any of those names, and there would be complaints about not waiting for Johnson. Even if Washington already recognized clues, he remained commitment phobic. Yeah, okay. So as I'm saying, if Washington, based on their first interview, the virtual or whatever else, what other homework they did, sensed that Ben Johnson was not going to be uh, a lock to take a job this cycle, you then at that point would say, well, maybe we need to move quicker on a Raheem Morris or a Brian Callahan or whoever it would be. Or, you know, go more hard at Bobby Slowick, who they did interview. So I don't understand how that is a negative, but okay. Um, not ready to rumble was another line in here. Um, again, in the sense of, is he ready to go? So it says here, oh, so this is right after that line, the commitment phobic line. Some some reports and insights meshed with the notion about Johnson not being ready to rumble. It also was pointed out, he is a considered a coach who prefers holding up in his office, coming up with game plans and playing with mad sciences vibes rather than leading a locker room. Well, 
how again how on earth is that a negative this was the whole point i've been told you guys this for weeks that the question is does ben johnson really want to do this thing being a head coach is very different than being a coordinator Again, I don't understand how that is a negative. I think this is an, uh, just another example of people assuming things that don't exist. Uh, you know, the, you're assuming that this is a knock on Ben Johnson when it's, again, A, no team sources mentioned in the story, and B, I, you know, uh, I, I don't, you know, I don't know what to, I don't know what to say. It's I'm kind of dumbfounded, to be honest. Um, a couple other ones in here. Um, I mentioned. Uh, uh, so one line in here is the NFL world praised the Lions offensive coordinator, coordinator as next in line in the context of alpha head coaches. It turned out they were coveting a false idol. I'm sorry. Did I miss something here? Did he take a job? Did has, hasn't like, forget me, all, all the other reporting from the major um, national people have all said some version of that. Ben Johnson seemingly prefers to just call plays rather than, dealing with all the responsibilities that come with the head coach. How? Yes. Like if in order to covet Ben Johnson, the way people were acting, you would have to think that he is ready to be a head coach. Thus, when he turns it down again, yes, it is a false idol. Now, that's just some flourishing writing, but it's just the idea of, hey, you keep saying this guy is the guy, but then he doesn't want to do it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know what else to say. Um, so my point is that... Uh, Oh, also it says here, the piece also cites Johnson's, quote, hefty compensation demands for the second year coordinator. Um, let me pull up the line here in the story. And it says, another main view centered on reports that Johnson's camp brought with them hefty compensation demands. Again, reports. Did everybody not hear this? Am I missing something here? I didn't say this. I didn't even. I didn't even get into the money, other than to note that this is one of the parts of the conversation. So, so the idea that I'm reporting this is just ridiculous. But again, it gets lumped in with this with hammering Ben Johnson because this is the angle that people have assumed that Ben that this is all a, a team angry about this guy who. You know, though that they're claiming they didn't now they didn't want in the first place. You got to read the story. I didn't say I'm not reporting this. I'm saying viewed uh, another main view centered on reports, not what I wrote. Um, and then there was the uh, the one quote that got a lot of attention um, about. And let me pull it up here. Um, okay, it says here outrageous simply outrageous that's not how from a league source familiar with the situation that's not how you conduct business it's how you ruin your reputation first of all it's one person so you know the league is not saying they wouldn't hire ben johnson again i'm just saying though it's um that but but here's the thing if you go back and read a couple paragraphs above um is it one the line here is the rub is that johnson who pulled himself out of 2022 opportunities despite his burgeoning hot coach status and his agent shared their exit plans by texting team officials while the commanders uh, were on a flight from DC to Michigan. And the, so when people see that and then they talk about, and then they get to the, uh, this is how you uh, ruin a reputation again, note that in the line it says, and maybe this is poor job by me, but it says um, the rub is that Johnson and his agent shared their exit plans. I'm not saying it's all on Ben Johnson. The agent had a big part of this too. That his, ben, like I'm positive without I don't know this, but like that Ben Johnson wasn't going. Hey, are the Commanders flying over? Where do we think they are? They're like halfway. Yeah, let's tell them now. I don't want to come. Screw them. I would bet he doesn't have a clue what they're what, what was going on. Other than like, hey Ben, we're gonna meet with Washington today at you know twelve thirty. So we got to be at the you know your house, my house, some some conference room, whatever it is. But I, you know, I don't imagine he's going. Let's wait till they get on a plane and then do it. This is the agent has responsibility here too. This is why you hire the agent to run that process. And needless to say, that process, you know, was was kind of all over the place. I'm not saying it was all them, but you know, I, I didn't see any other issues with Washington's process. If Ben Johnson has has the meeting and then just drops, or people going, "Wow, Washington's process was terrible," 
No, I, I, I heard nothing, no other issues, uh, at least that I've not heard of. So, um, and I've, again, I've tried to talk to as many people as I can. And lastly, let's just not forget, people acting as if Washington's out for, for, for blood or something. W- what about the other quotes? What about the quotes from a reporter who has nothing to do with Washington or Detroit or is not a national insider? Uh, reporting that uh, Ben Johnson was essentially turned off because there was a lot of basketball guys, you know, quote, uh, basketball guys who, you know, think they knew too much. Well, that, that seems like a big shot. Are we not? I mean, look, j- yes, Josh Harris and Magic Johnson and Bob Myers come from the world of the NBA relative to the NFL. Are, are they are they clueless? Is Bob Myers not viewed as one of the best executives in the league? Is Josh Harris not a guy who is, you know, uh, has been highly successful in his business world and now is an owner of several teams. He, he also owns an NHL team. Like, are, are they, is he a hockey guy? Like, and, and, you know, Rick Spielman was in the room, the former Vikings GM. But my point is that why, are, why isn't that quote being mentioned? And again, I'm not defending Washington. I'm just defending logic, okay? Why isn't that quote being mentioned as an issue? Um, you know, I, I don't know. So anyway, I just wanted to go through that. And now, like I said, I, they can, anybody can say whatever they want about it. But my issue is always the logic. And this is my issue has been over the over time with any topic. You know, whatever your personal bias is, you've got to look at it and say, well, does this make, does this topic make sense for whatever the reason? People f- hated Bruce Allen way more than they were frustrated with Ron Rivera, right? But it would be insane to say that Ron Rivera did a better job, uh, his staff did a better job of drafting high in drafts compared to Bruce Allen, whose last three drafts were John Allen, Jerron Payne, and Montez Sweat. But of course, anytime you would try to say, well, Bruce Allen's group did pretty good here, you would be told drop dead, <laughs> right? Um, I, I've mentioned this before. I always had the same issue with Ernie Grunfeld with the Wizards. No matter what people would say, call me the Ernie Grunfeld apologist because I dared say things like he traded JaVale McGee and Nick Young for Nene, who turned this franchise, who helped to turn the, the, the John Wall era uh, around. He got Marching Gortat for a first-round pick, and that proved to be a pretty good deal. He drafted Bradley Beal third in 2012, and if you say, well, that's easy, well, remember, the second pick was Michael Kidd Gilchrist, who flamed out pretty quickly. So it's okay to point out when somebody you think overall isn't necessarily doing a good job, uh, or you're not, you know, you prefer somebody else, when they do it. And that's how I'm viewing it here. I, I you know, if we, we can debate, you know, is Cliff Kingsbury the right OC choice? Is Dan Quinn, is that the best way to go or whatever? But their process in, overall seems fair to me at this point. I haven't heard much criticism about it. And again, no control F team source, and you tell me what's there. Um, just getting insight from the from them, of course, would be incredibly biased one way or the other. I, that doesn't serve you or me. It's it's good for insight, but you got to talk to other people about this. And it's just bizarre to me how many people are assuming that this is all coming from the team. Again, I don't know who Schefter is talking to. I can just tell you. That I asked around the question, what did you make of what happened with Ben Johnson? And when the majority of everybody, when I say the majority, let me rephrase. I'm talking like a 20 to 1 ratio. It wasn't like, you know, six people said Ben Johnson screwed Washington and three people said Washington was uh, the problem here. It wasn't that way at all. But again, when people want to just assume that's what's happening here and, you know, could for them, but they would just be wrong, at least with regards to my reporting. Could I have written things better cleanly? Sure, of course. I, I'm not going to question that. Uh, always can do better. There was a little bit of a rush job at the end, uh, just from timing, but all good. Um, I'm okay. But in terms of the idea of, of, of what's going on here, I, it uh, people are just way off, in my opinion. Um, doesn't matter. The world is moving on. It's Dan Quinn. It's Adam Peters, it's Josh Harris, and everybody else. Uh, we'll, we'll move past this Ben Johnson stuff. I'm going to hopefully never talk about it again uh, here. But I just wanted to mention that because it was a lot of attention on it this week. All right, uh, but that is it for now. Again, thanks to Phil Longo for his time. Uh, thanks to everyone here for checking out the podcast and reading The Athletic. Oh, I, I guess I didn't mention, and let me just do it quickly because I did tease it in the opening with regards to the free agents. You know, Washington's got over 20 names. Uh, but I, I kind of looked at like the top, in my view, like sort of the top 14 that I think you at least have some question about. I didn't rank them 
based on the best players. I ranked them based on what I thought was the best fit for Washington. Like, it's not going to surprise you that Cam Curl is number one on the list uh, because, you know, he's the best player from this group. And it's a really interesting debate. How much money should Washington give him? Is it sort of, you know, is it is it enough to say, hey, use the franchise tag to make him one of the you know five highest paid safeties in the league? Or... Do you view it as, hey, Quan Martin looked a little bit better at the end of the year. You, Derek Forrest emerged the previous year. Uh, Percy Butler is there. And look, maybe they're just going to get more out of a new coaching staff, right? Uh, clearly, the secondary took steps back last year, and I think the coaching situation played a big factor in that. Now, off the bat, we know that the new defensive coordinator, uh, Joe Witt Jr., also coached the secondary in Dallas, and they had – a player who two out of three, two of the last three years, two different players lead the league in interceptions. So they clearly are doing something there with their staff. I think that's notable, and uh, maybe that's you know all it takes to get more out of those safeties, Emmanuel Forbes, etc. Uh, so we'll we'll see about that. But other names, like I'll just give you the the number two on the list, James Smith Williams. Do I think James Smith Williams is the second best player on this list? I do not. But in trying to piece to look at how they're going to piece to this team together, assuming that John Allen and Deron Payne are back, and let's just even say they draft a, a defensive end with one of their two second round picks, just for argument's sake, you know, if that second round pick has comes in and has a real impact, well, all of a sudden maybe that line is getting back to being closer to where things were when you had Montez Sweat and Chase Young. But let's go back twenty twenty one. The, the defensive end opposite Sweat was not Chase Young, who was out most of the year. It was primarily James Smith-Williams. And his individual numbers are not particularly notable, but his presence, he stayed in his lane. He did his job. He did the dirty work. So the other guys could go ahead and, you know, be more aggressive with some of their choices with pass rusher or other or other things on the field. So why not go with that? I'm not saying give James give James Smith Williams a four year forty million dollar contract. I'm just saying even if it's a one or a two year deal for a modest number, we have seen him be a guy that can play. Um, if if they if there's a world where somehow they end up with two different defensive ends, draft or free agency or whatever, then he's you know he's a guy who's coming off the bench. He can also play defensive tackle. So I'm not saying break the bank. I'm just saying that if you tell me the defensive line is James Smith Williams at left end, then Deron Payne, then John Allen. And then again, let's just say a rookie, they draft in the second or third round. Okay. Let's see. Maybe that's enough to help Allen and Payne get back to their pro bowl levels um, and enough to generate enough pass rush. Or like I said, Smith Williams, isn't that pass rush guy. He's solid against the run, but sometimes solid is good. You can't just have four alphas going for it at all times. And I just think Smith Williams was a guy who can be helpful. Wouldn't cost you much, but 2021, he was the starter on a defense that was really good that year. And, you know, his, his ability to do his job, I think played a big factor in that. So that's how I viewed this list. And, you know, you can look and see where I have Kendall Fuller and Antonio Gibson and Curtis Samuel and Sadiq Charles, Khalid Hudson and others. So I would just say, go check that out on the athletic. All right. That is it for now. Again, appreciate you checking this out. Oh, you know, the Super Bowl. Um, I guess this will be quickly throw in here. I've got the Chiefs. I, I think it's like 2320. Uh look, I you know, it, it's it's maybe a little too easy to say go them, even though they're the underdog. But I think the, their offense has picked up over the last couple weeks. They're gonna need either whether it's Rasheed Rice or Isaiah Pacheco or uh, you know, uh, MVS, somebody else. It can't just be Travis Kelsey. They're gonna need one or two of those guys to make some big plays and not just put the onus on Kelsey because obviously the 49ers are going to do what they can to deal with him. They've got Fred Warner and others. So I think that is, uh, you know, as long as Kansas City has somebody else that can step up, I've got them winning here. Their defense has been lights out. And, you know, look, I'm not knocking Brock Purdy, but this is a huge spot for him. Um, you know, he's going to have to make some big throws and to compete with Mahomes. We'll see if he can get that done. Hey, uh, so I uh, everything else you just heard to this point I had recorded earlier and just haven't had a chance to upload, edit and upload. But since this has happened, the commanders have been busy with regards to filling out the Dan Quinn staff. Just announced, or actually wasn't announced, uh, reported in the last few minutes um, by the birthday girl Nikki Javala and confirmed by yours truly. They are keeping 
quarterback coach Tavita Pritchard for the same position. I'm uh, I- I'm not going to say I'm not surprised as if that's to say I knew this was coming. It's but it is. I'm not. I would say I'm not surprised based on having talked to uh, Tavita. You know, throughout the years we've had when we had those opportunities, he really is impressive. Um, as a communicator with us, um, and you know, you figure that's got to translate over to other parts of his job. And from what I gather, he did impress in his interview with Dan Quinn and Cliff Kingsbury. So, Tavita Pritchard stays as QB coach, which is interesting in it also because earlier in the day, Washington. Uh, it was reported as well that Washington is bringing in former Eagles offensive coordinator Brian Johnson, who was the QB coach prior to getting promoted last year. And then the Eagles got rid of Johnson and um, their defensive coordinator after you know sort of the way that year went down. They have uh, it is unclear what role Johnson is going to have, what his official title could be. Maybe it's something like pass game coordinator or you know what have you. Now that um, Pritchard is got the QB role, so you would have now Kingsbury, Brian Johnson, and Tavita Pritchard around to you know help. Presumably, a young quarterback could be Sam Howell, could be the player they draft at number two, most likely. So the offensive staff is taking shape at the most important position. Tavita Pritchard is staying. Uh, so all right, I think that's the first you know the first one we know of from the existing staff, which is interesting because he came in last year and not part of the Ron Rivera Commanders circumstances. So interesting there. In addition to that, also coming out today, Washington is bringing in Raiders defensive backs coach Jason Simmons to help with the secondary and be the defensive pass game coordinator. He previously worked with new defensive coordinator Joe Witt in Green Bay. Um, Washington tried to get some other people off of Dallas' staff, including defensive backs coach Al Harris. They have uh, were blocked from Harris and a couple others, so pivoting this way <clears throat> to Simmons, um, you know, um, it's, you know, at this point, it's in Dan Quinn we trust, and I'm not a we, meaning the team. I just mean, you know, they obviously, you know, uh, Quinn has been around the league for many years, uh, Joe Witt as well. So they've obviously got a good feel for who's out there. And uh, they brought somebody in to um, to help that cause. And the, the Raiders had a pretty good defense last year for sure. And we know Washington did not. So whoever they want to bring in for the defensive side, I think we're all going to sit there and go, okay, um, good stuff. And I will note that, you know, look, I, I – I think it's pretty obvious, right? The secondary was a big letdown last year, but, you know, between St. Juice and Forbes and Martin and Forrest and Butler, you know, not even getting into whether Cam Curl comes back or Kendall Fuller comes back, there is talent there. The question is, you know, how do you maximize it? How do you do enough to get uh, to get them to play? Obviously, last year was not good uh, with Brett Wieselmeyer, who was let go during the year along with Jack Del Rio. So, good dump there. Um, you know, to, to get some new people in. And obviously, look, Dallas's defense, excellent last year. The Raiders were very good. So people from those two staffs coming to Washington now to work this out. I, I am still curious to see who else from the staff were to stay. Like, you know, the um, my, my the only thing I would sort of felt comfortable about, this is not based on reporting, this is just based on my own guesses, is Ryan Kerrigan as the backup defensive uh, line coach obviously he just did it last year for the first time you know on I, on the assumption that the new staff thinks he's pretty good to have somebody who's just been in the league who obviously is connected to the franchise uh, long term beyond just the last uh, year you know I, I think that's a pretty good thing to do they still have to of course hire a defensive line coach a linebacker coach um, offensive line tight end wide receiver running back, special teams coordinator. All the people on staff at those jobs are still here. We'll see. Ken Zampezi has moved on to Atlanta, but other than that, nothing has changed yet. So we should hear something about this in the in the next, uh, the beginning to middle of next week. But there we go. Some three names to add to the coaching roster. 
All right, so let me get this up now. Appreciate everybody's patience. Thanks to again for Phil Longo for uh, talking about Cliff Kingsbury, Drake May, and Sam Howell. Thanks to everyone here for checking out the podcast again. If you missed it the other day, listen to David Aldridge and I talk about the uh, our initial impressions of Dan Quinn and then John Lechota, uh, our Cowboys insider with the Athletic, on what we can expect from a Dan Quinn team as well as Joe Witt as coordinator. That is it for now. Ben Standick signing off. Until next time. See ya.